0: In 1874, the British government passed a series of laws called the regulation of public worship. A lot of people cared an awful lot about church back then. True. On one side, people wanted more ritual and ceremony.
1: Order. Order.
0: On the other side, they wanted mostly none. In the midst of the battle, one minister, a rector in London at a church called St. George in the East, had stopped a practice oh. whereby people who volunteered in church services could avail themselves of liquor from the rector's cupboard before and after the service. The reverend king closed the cupboard we have opened it again welcome to the rector's cupboard order well we're pleased today to be joined by someone that we've just met Uh, padre gotuma is a poet and theologian or writer um he's done great work in reconciliation um Padraig led a community in Ireland called the Corrymeela Community from 2014 to 2019. That's uh, an organization working on peace and reconciliation. And we came to uh, be familiar with Padraig through a conference that we ent- attended um, by Zoom, right? Yes, um, as all conferences are right yeah, now. <laughs> and just and just loved. Um, uh, what Padraig had to say. So uh, our hope here is to speak about some of these very things. Uh, Padraig has interest in uh, religion and language and violence, which also means reconciliation and peace and hope. Um, and so we just really connected and mm-hmm. we think you will too as listeners. So Padraig, thank you so much for joining us yes. um, from mm-hmm. all the way over there or we'll all the way over here. Thanks so much. Thanks very
1: much, Todd okay. and Amanda. Nice to be with you.
0: Great, great to meet you. Um, so, why don't you, off the top here, tell us a little bit about yourself and, and our listeners, kind of locate where you are at. Um, you could do that geographically, but but even uh, vocationally in terms of your work and what matters to you, uh, spiritually. Where have you found yourself in 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 life and how?
1: Um, so I'm in Ireland, um, <clears throat> but twelve miles from the Atlantic coast in the northwest of Ireland, and um, I am at the end of this pandemic year, which like um, for everybody, I suppose, it's arresting attention in all kinds of ways to inequalities that were long standing. Um, mm-hmm. I am Catholic on, on bad days or on good days, I'm not sure which. I uh, grew up in, in Cork on the very south coast here um, as you know, one of six children um, I studied theology. I did a Vatican undergrad and then a master's at the Presbyterians looking at the Gospels. And then I'm doing a PhD looking at poetry and prayer. Are you so, doing a
0: PhD now?
1: Yeah, part time. Oh. Yeah, from University of Glasgow. So, yeah. So, uh, I mean, the, I, I think I used to think that that religion was my interest. Um but ultimately, I think it's languages and, and religion in many ways is composed of language. So, mm-hmm. yeah, I mean, I'm reading the Greek myths at the moment and I'm, I find those as transfixing as I do to the Genesis myths.
0: Are you reading those for part of your PhD work or just?
1: No, just because I feel like a failure as a poet when I don't know who Persephone is.
0: <laughs> yeah, Persephone here is like a, a craft beer.
2: It, it is not too far from us, <laughs> yeah. but I, I think yeah. we're talking a different thing. Yeah.
1: <laughs> Well, she is queen of the underworld. <laughs> she was lured there by Hades and she got stuck there because she ate six pomegranate seeds. <laughs> I know these things now because I'm <laughs> listening to Stephen Fry's rendition. Oh, so that's fantastic. He makes it very funny and very easy to remember.
2: Oh, that's lovely. Um, now, uh, I understand you're, you're not leading the Cory uh, Mila community anymore, at least from... from um, but. You clearly were for a very long time. I, I became very fascinated and started doing a little bit of digging and stuff like that into this community. Would you mind talking to us a little bit about it?
1: Sure. And Carmilla is a, a community, an ecumenical community in Ireland. <clears throat> Excuse me, based on the North Coast, um, Carmilla is not a residential community like it's not a like a Franciscan yeah. monastery. It's a it's like the Iona community in the sense of that it's non-residential people in their ordinary lives commit to being a community member, um, coming to weekends, committing to pray to, for each other and um, committing more, more so to be involved in the work of reconciliation. It was founded by Ray Davy, who was a Presbyterian minister. He had been a prisoner of war in Dresden. Um, during the Second World War, he was uh, a volunteer padre with the YMCA and was captured and taken amongst other prison camps, taken to Dresden. Um, and so his prison camp got um, released, I suppose, with the Allied forces bombing of Dresden in February 1945. And I, I think he saw there the overcoming of the enemy through annihilation and in a certain mm-hmm. sense saw the most devastating version of the human imagination when it comes to um, enmity. He came back to Ireland, uh, a recently partitioned Ireland. Ireland was partitioned in 1921. We're coming up to the centenary next year. And that always was a controversial thing. And he saw people in his own native Ireland in the north, um, imagining that the only way to um, overcome the enmity of the other would be to annihilate the other. So he began this series of projects of peace and reconciliation initiatives all his life, really, and in 65, heard of a piece of land for sale and together with some others um, was involved in the purchase of that land to set up a centre for reconciliation and then around that centre a community of people in their ordinary lives mm. committed to um, forming this thing called a community and they called it the Corimila community because that's the name of the few fields where the piece of land uh, was yeah. across Ireland everywhere all they're called townlands, every townland has a name and so the townland of that area is Corimila
2: mm, That's Beautiful. I mean, looking at pictures and stuff, I was like, I would like to go there. It (laughs) just seems. This is a
0: a beautiful prayer book. And so you wrote this, you wrote the prayers in this for this community?
1: Correct. Yeah. So Carmela has a a rhythm where there's 31 days of prayer and there's about 170, 180 members of the community and different members have their names down for different days of the month. And so the idea always was, is that there's a, a quick, a brief, new testament text and then uh, people's names and Mm. the ideas that every month people get prayed for um Mm. and when i came into the role of leadership i was curious about how we how those texts were chosen numbers one to thirty one and they were just kind of randomly chosen from a devotional there was no particular um choice in it and so i said "Ah, i'm changing them (laughs) um because I was curious and I I had the sense as I came into the role of leadership in 2014 that one of the things we needed was courage. Courage is a word in English coming from core, Latin word core, C-O-R, car, meaning heart. And so um, I wanted to look at a journey through the Gospels through the lens of do not fear. And so the texts chosen really are that from day one to day thirty one. They're a journey through The four canonical Gospels through the lens of Do Not Fear, roughly in some kind of imagination of a chronological order of the life of Jesus of Nazareth. Obviously, the the Gospels differ in their accounts about the order of things, but roughly so. It's a beautiful book. Yeah, so then I wrote a prayer for each day, a collect.
0: So um, as we're recording this, it's kind of the end, not kind of, it's the end of 2020. Yes, it is. Um, And hopefully the beginning of something new we were speaking before we started recording about uh the vaccine that has started to roll out and be administered and such um i'm I'm thinking of this in terms of all your work and what you know language and and poetry and but as you find yourself right now here at the end of 2020 what what are you hoping for in the world i think of you, you talked about um our attention being arrested towards some injustices. Um, But what is it that you're hoping for in the world right now?
1: In the world? um, (laughs) Well, I I suppose it depends what we're talking about. Um, As I think about Britain, um, I don't live in Britain. I'm not British. But certainly Irish history and Irish present is impacted by British present. Um, Mm. Brexit is happening and 2021 is A, the centenary of partition in Ireland and B, um, Brexit year, and that's going to be really complicated. I live right on the border, and so um, yeah, there's all kinds of complications about what on earth Brexit is going to be. I'm very critical of it as a whole project and as a national imagination about what Englishness is, because I think ultimately that was one of the anxieties. Um, and one of the things that I think is evidenced is that. Um, the English history system doesn't pay attention mm. to English colonisation. Mm. Um, a lot of people don't know where they went and how long they were there and the impact about what happened then and the impact of that now, Ireland uh, being one of those places. Um, and I I think that's one of the things I hope for, is that people in positions of power, and I mean that in as much as... Um, Corporations as well as countries and um, former um, colonising countries, former empires, I would like them to um, pay attention to the impact of their power Mm. and begin to be more just. Mm. (laughs) That includes reparations, that includes um, reforming matters to do with certain state powers like the police. One of the things that contributed massively to ongoing peace in the north of Ireland was the reformation of the police and the introduction of the police ombudsman Uh, um, uh, uh, body I suppose you'd call it which is in essence policing the police because the police here had been um, such a a uh, a contested and painful um, history Um, and for the last 20 years the police have been subject to the cooperation and the participation and the collaboration with the office of the police ombudsman and that has been for the betterment of everybody and for the betterment of justice. So, um, I think that's a demonstration.
0: Are you generally hopeful kind of about? Hope for. Are you generally hopeful about some of those changes? I mean, I imagine we see from across the ocean here, and and I follow uh, British news and such. But everything is COVID. Everything is pandemic, and then you see a little bit about some you know, no deal Brexit or whatever. And yeah. uh, are you hopeful that there could be maybe some more positive outcomes oh, after no. COVID? No, oh. yeah. No. It, it doesn't no. seem to be going that way. It seems that, yeah.
1: No, I mean, I, I, I'm critical of the whole Brexit project. So to my mind, it's difficult to imagine what a good Brexit is because, certainly coming from Ireland, because um, Brexit in itself was not a project of, what's called the United Kingdom, even though I'm critical of that term too, Brexit was an English project. And I think yeah. one of the anxieties was, is that I, I think England needs to be, have a federal parliament of its own or a devolved right. parliament where English matters can be explored in that context. And I think ultimately lots of the questions that were being explored through the Brexit project are are very valid and important and serious questions about the population of English people in England um, or people who live in England. Um, but that is yeah. interfering enormously with the, you know, internationally ratified Good Friday Agreement Treaty that, that is in place here that wasn't theirs to interfere with. Um, mm. And I, I do hold some of the politicians, Nigel Farage and David Cameron, yeah. Yeah. Um, to account yeah. because of the reckless way within which they engaged in projects and then didn't bother doing any research or being interested in the truth in terms well, of how they communicated, and
0: then traveled, traveled, what impact the, they were going to have right and then traveled the world doing the same you know nigel farage over near this part of the world right like on yeah. stage with with trump and such yeah.
1: one of the things that oh, i'm hopeful but not because i'm not because i think that's going to work out i think hope is something that we need in order to keep on breathing and mm-hmm. so i don't want to let any yeah. poor project take away my capacity for hope and my practice of hope so hope for me is um, nurtured by something other than the news
0: <laughs> that's one of the things that that uh, most kind of uh, drew us to your work was uh, the kind of relation between some of the really big difficult um, almost impossible things in the world uh, where you'd think th- there can't this can't work out there can't be reconciliation here. But then we heard in your work and in the way that you spoke at that conference that we were at uh, a call to attentiveness on what would seem like smaller things but can have such a huge impact. Words, language, the way people speak to one another, right? And, of course, poetry. So I I just wanted to, like, this little section from the introduction to your daily prayer book. Um, You say prayer like poetry, like breath, like our names, has a fundamental rhythm in our bodies. It changes, it adapts, it varies from the canon, it sings, it swears. It is syncopated by the rhythm underneath the rhythm, the love underneath the love. The rhyme underneath the rhyme, the name underneath the name, the welcome underneath the welcome, the prayer beneath the prayer. Your attentiveness to words is clearly something that isn't just appreciation for how something sounds, though it's that as well. I think, but um, it's it, there's it's really appealing. We have on the shelf behind Allison here the. The um, Chambers oh. Dictionary of Etymology, which is inspired uh, by I you, bet. right? This, I love it. Here's mine. <laughs> yeah, yes, exactly. It, I, we like it, your it, cover better. Yeah. But, you know, when it literally I was it, purchased it was, after we watched you
2: at the conference, and Todd's like, that's yeah. a great book. <laughs> <Yeah>.
0: <laughs> but, so obviously poetry is an important part of your life and your living. Uh, tell us about this, because I think in terms of we're, we're coming out of kind of evangelical experience and the rest. Poetry is something that is not, mm. you know, it, it, it's not it doesn't super register valuable. In, in evangelical culture to a large degree. Uh, tell mm. us about what it means that poetry is part of your life. It's such a key part.
1: Well, I, I do find myself in debt to the Irish education system. Um, from the age of five to 17, we were learning off poems in two languages every week. Um, and having them having to have them off by heart to recite back to the teacher um, in Irish and then in English as well Um, and for exams you know you needed to have I suppose 80 or 90 poems in each language memorized to be able to comment on whatever poems were, were coming up in the examination questions in Irish literature and in English literature and I mean Irish language literature and then English language literature obviously Irish poets different ones write in different languages or translate themselves across the two um and that doesn't make everybody interested in poetry but i think it does mean that you can't get away from it and in ireland poetry is has been a very strong political force for a long time Mm. um some of some of the people executed in 1916 uprising kind of one of the more recent agitations for independence um, for Ireland from the British Empire. A a few of the people executed there were poets whose um, whose work is then studied in school, both in history and in literature and in the English and Irish languages. So um, poets have a very strong um, role in, in Ireland, and it just never it never even occurred to me that I ever had to choose between poetry and an interest in theology, especially because um you know the the library of literatures that is known as the Bible um includes so much poetry and, uh, and attent- an attentiveness to form and syntax and style and difference and argument in all those always felt like it was very rewarding. Um, yeah, so I mean, i I, I present poetry unbound with on being and um, I notice so often like we, we have a lot of people who listen and so many people write and say that they have loved poetry for a long time, but maybe felt like um, they didn't have permission to love poetry maybe right. because they don't know right. um, they don't feel educated enough on, in the school of poetry in order to be able to say what they admire about a poem, which I think is a, a, a failure of education. Ultimately, if somebody likes a poem, they should just like the poem right. and meet that poem <laughs> with the story of their life rather than feeling like oh i like the poem but i'm probably wrong i think that's a demonstration of us asking the wrong questions of students in in literature examinations mm.
0: so you can you, you would you read poetry every day i do and you so th- th- i cuz this is something that strikes me you say people are afraid that they're getting it wrong that tendency even in my own theological education and then i really appreciate what you say about The Bible, because so much is poetry, and I remember in in working as a pastor, even trying to—and this is in an evangelical church—even trying to speak to people about the importance of poetry, and also how you read that differently, what that means about truth itself, how you read a proverb as compared to something else, right? That, and and for the most part, even from wonderful people, you're getting kind of like, oh. That's, that's a, I don't have time for that or something, as if it's kind of lower, right? Um, and, and then the idea that somebody reads a poem and they go, well, I don't get it. I just don't get the, what this is doing. So what do you do? How do you, ha- is there a way to help people with that? How do you kind of do well, some of that? I education? mean,
1: only if they want to. I mean, yeah. no, you don't have to like poems. That's the thing. Like if somebody says, I don't get it and, I, I'm, and I'm uninterested, I just <laughs> think, well, they're uninterested, you know. I'm uninterested in lots of sport, you know. <laughs> Uh, and you know it's not um it's not a moral mandate to have to get it yeah. Yeah, and i don't i also don't take it as a as a measure of somebody's intelligence as to whether uh, they're into something or not Do you yeah, know? it's just yeah. they're not interested in it it's grand um but for people and i know there are many who enjoyed some poetry in school or you know turned to a poem during a time of grief or joy um or wrote a poem during a time of grief or joy i think there's something intuitive that we find in all cultures across the world, that people moved to language and moved to form and moved to lyric and song during times of heightened importance. And therefore, I think there is at the heart of humanity, something not in every person, but definitely in every culture that has turned toward poetry as well as the other arts. And so therefore, I I think there is a democracy in the arts. And unfortunately, I think that some of the Schools of the arts have kind of talked ourselves into being this highfalutin art that seems like it is that you need um, the very specific and particular vocabularies in order to be able to sound like you know what you're talking about. Mm -hmm. When actually the hope is, is that somebody can say, I love this poem because... It was read out at that time that was so important to me or at a time when I felt like I had no words. Somebody read this poem at a funeral or at a time of shock or grief. Mm. And actually, I found myself pouring into those words. And I can't even remember what it said, but I remember how I felt. And therefore, I love this poem because of that. Mm. And I hear that all the time, that people have these um, emotional relationships to a poem. Not everybody wants to be a critic and they don't have to be, Um, you know, I I think it it is enough to love a poem because, you know, a poem has loved you in a time when you were in need of some kind of love and language. And I know so many people who even to say that they would feel like, oh, but I I didn't pass my exams or I didn't read that book or I don't know whatever. I don't care. I want to know what happened in your life and how did that poem meet you? And Mm -hmm. isn't that interesting that the poem respected you? Because I think poetry is respectful of its readers and listeners rather than readers and listeners having to pass some kind of examination to know whether they are good enough or intelligent enough or knowledgeable enough to to love a poem properly.
2: That's that's really interesting that you talk about it. it's a very different framing of kind of our relationship with language our relationship with words and mm. and with with poetry or story. Um, I I think it's it's absolutely beautiful. And it, it, yeah, there's, there's so much freedom in that to, to not have to live up to some sort of expectation, but you can just experience and yeah. you don't necessarily have to quantify that or qualify that. And you can just be, um, yeah. and I, I think that that, <coughs> sorry, uh, can, can, yeah, resonate with, with a lot of people. Um, would you have any sort of suggestions for people who maybe have felt too intimidated to really dip their toe into poetry too much, like where they could start? Or is it just yeah. a matter of just doing it?
1: I think getting a nice anthology is a good thing. Um, mm. There's some great anthologies from Blood Axe, Being Alive, Staying Alive, Being Human, mm. um, Soul Food. And those anthologies have um, kind of poems arranged according to various human experiences, Times of joy, times of shock, times of change, times of grief, mm. you know, and so you can think, oh, I want to read a few poems about this particular thing. And mm. then and these poems are from a vast variety of living and dead poets mm. from a vast variety of places. And so you're likely to come across some to go, oh, I like that um, and I, I don't care for that or I'm <laughs> uninterested in what that's doing and then follow what you like. Right. Um, And like poetry, I think, is best understood as something like the Atlantic Ocean. And if you try to imagine all of the um, beaches and strands that go onto the Atlantic Ocean, how many are there? Thousands upon thousands upon thousands. You'll never get to them all. And so you'll never get to all the poetry, but find a strand you like. And you might never leave there. You might just go, you know what? I absolutely love Emily Dickinson. I haven't a clue what she's on about, but I absolutely (laughs) love it. And I'm going to keep on reading her because I'm moved by what she does in language. And I've stopped Mm. trying to understand her and I've just begun to continue to read her and to see what she's doing. That's enough. You know, you might, might never move from there. Or, you know, you might turn to the poetry of Lorna Goodison or Tracy K. Smith um, or Margaret Atwood right. or, or Yonina Kirtan. You know, there's so many yeah. brilliant poets. You can stay there um, with who you're working with and who you're reading and who moves you. And from that, that's enough.
0: Can, can you read a poem for us? Ah, uh, sure. Or, or a section there. You, you choose for us.
1: <laughs> um, I've got a little poem called "Go to Hell." <laughs>
2: <laughs> Perfect.
1: Um, I bear the unusual accolade of the, the, the highest scoring examination I did in my undergrad was an essay on hell, and my, I did a Vatican undergrad. And my supervisor, who was a very conservative man, a a (laughs) Johannine scholar, called me into his office and he said, you scored very highly on this essay on hell. And I went, oh, gosh, that's nice to know. Thinking he was congratulating me. And he said, this is slightly disturbing. (laughs) And I said, well, I'm a big fan of Dante's Inferno. And he said, nevertheless. Oh, my goodness. (laughs) That's
0: perfect. Thank you. Anyway, so
1: here's a poem. Go to hell. He is called to hell, this man, he is called to glory. He knows well those twisted ways and those who've lost their story. He is called to clay, this man, he is called to yearning. He has heard of hidden streams that heal those tired of burning. He's searching out those raised in hell. He wants to know the things they know. He believes in dreamland where the ragged people go. He is called to quiet now. He is called to silence, to squat down on the breaking ground with those who've swallowed violence. He is called to anguished thoughts. He is called to flowers, to find in hell's own lonely fury that which no flame devours. I saw him on the midway path. I saw he carried two things only. On his trip to hell, this man, he is called to story.
0: Thank you. Does it, from that, I'd like to speak about just words for a few minutes. I, I, I anticipate, I can be doing something like watching television and an advertisement will come on, right? And sometimes I get angry at, at the TV. Or I'll get angry at like bad writing in a sitcom or something like something that doesn't matter. But I'll I'll just look and I'll think, what a waste of words that was. Or they didn't. And when I hear you say like, he is called to yearning t- to flowers, um, there is an attentiveness to words mm-hmm. that, I mean, my question is, do you get upset at what words generally mean for most people in the world right now? That they just They just go, they're just kind of, it's just more words than ever, but maybe less meaning. How do you respond when you see that kind of thing?
1: Well, I mean, I I try to have a posture of respect to most people in the world, (laughs) or at least the few that I meet. Um, uh, I think people are going to put the words around things that matter to them, usually ordinary words, and that's enough, that's okay. Um, I get... I get, uh, I'm critical of people in positions of power who use yeah. words um, in a way where they know they're lying and uh, in a way where they are covering over and thinking that maybe if they use fancy words or maybe uh, if they use a bit of yeah. catchphraseology that people will be stupid enough to be duped by yeah. that. I find that abhorrent.
0: I've I've seen it um, with this thing that... Um, I think it happens where you are. It certainly happens here. Uh, you see it in the political realm often, and it's on every side where something is about to be said. And then the person will say, let me be clear. And then mm. they'll say the fall. And you're like, OK, I know something unclear is coming, <laughs> is coming right now. Right. That.
1: So this uh, in my in my undergrad, there was a woman who used to um, she she had a photographic memory and um But she she was often very critical of our lecturers. And it was a very, very conservative college I went to. My God. But she often felt like some of our lecturers, most of whom were priests, weren't being conservative enough. And every now and then she'd put her hand up and she'd say, um, excuse me, father, with respect. And then she'd launch into something with absolutely no respect in it. And I wrote a poem, a very short one that said, excuse me, father, with respect. I think you're an asshole because... That seemed to be what she was yeah, saying yeah. over and over again. Um, I've never published that poem. No. Kind of, oh. it's, it's not we'll, very subtle. We'll include it <laughs> in the episode. notes. Um,
0: we, one of the things that, that um, struck us in, in listening to your talk um, at Evolving Faith, right? Yes. Was uh, around the word Jesus. You had in, in your talk there um, accounts of how you had heard the word Jesus in some hurtful and damaging ways. Um, And then it, of course, moved somewhere else. Uh, Can you tell us about that, hearing that word, Jesus?
1: Well, isn't it an interesting word? Yes, sure. It's just somebody's name. And like, if you're in a place that speaks Spanish, you'll find loads of people called Jesus. Um, Jesus. Um, uh, Like, uh, so when I was 18, I was put through some exorcisms, the first of which was from a Californian. And I don't hold the people of California to blame for all of that. Um, of exorcisms because somebody had told somebody that I had told them that I was gay. And so I was part of an ecumenical, although mostly evangelical in culture and leadership and power, an ecumenical organization that um, considered to be being gay. One of two things, either a possession by a devil or a psychological flaw. Um, And so the way to go through... um, curing that, first of all, was to see if it was a devilish thing. So there was three exorcisms and the second of which was when those were seemed to be unsuccessful um, uh, to kind of mandate some kind of um, so-called reparative therapy. And so the name of Jesus in that context was often being chanted in a in a fairly brutal way, like some diabolic curse over me when people were trying to create enough noise that apparently would frighten the devil. It just frightened me and then made me think I am a devil. Which um, probably leads to my interest in hell and Persephone. Yeah. <laughs> so it has contributed to great literature or to at least some kind of literature. Certainly a great interest in literature. Um, yeah, so the name Jesus, I think, is a very interesting one to pay attention to. Um, yeah, because it's as ordinary as John or Mary or Kathleen, you know, or Seamus or any, whatever name is ordinary, where or, wherever ordinary is, you know, Jesus is just another name like that. And I think that's um, an interesting thing to have to pay attention to. Hmm.
2: So so how do you go about kind of recovering that? I mean, is is it just the the repositioning it, recontextualizing it within, like, this is, this is just a name or, or is there something else that, that ends up happening there? Like.
1: Yeah. I mean, I'm not sure that I am trying to recover that um, Mm. because I think it's good to have had um, Mm. these brutal experiences. Not that I would want to repeat them and I certainly wouldn't wish them on anybody else, but having, um, having that experience means that I'm always cautious about religion Um, And having that experience also means that I don't assume that where a word that says it's good is being used, Uh. that that necessarily corresponds Mm. to causing good and the the space between stated intention and measured impact is is very wide, unfortunately, often. And that's from me as well as towards me. I don't consider myself to be um, immune to to that kind of hypocrisy. Um, But certainly I have I've participated in it both in being, um, in that position of, hip, hip, of you know where mm-hmm. what I'm saying about myself or what I'm thinking is very different from the impact of what I'm saying, and other people have done that to me too, and we have done that together to the world. So yeah, I I think the name Jesus in some ways is, uh, it's many things. It's a warning about the danger of power and religion. It's a warning that you know Christianity as a term. an interesting one the word christ coming from um from greek meaning messiah and i think often people who went around the world saying they were spreading christianity were actually spreading the idea that they thought they were the messiah you know Mm -hmm. bringing what they thought Mm -hmm. culture was what they thought Mm -hmm. governance was what they thought proper language was what they thought um sophistication was what they thought decorum was and in so doing annihilating peoples and cultures Mm -hmm. and languages and and all kinds of homesteads and ways of being. And so I think Jesus and Christ are, they, they, because of the last 2000 years, they will, for at least the next 2000 years, always need to come with some warnings mm. because so much violence has been done yeah. under the shadow yeah. of those names by people who claim to love those names.
0: Does it give you a sympathy or, or maybe that's the wrong word for, like you, you tell us of this experience you had when you were younger Um, you must be able to, uh, have an understanding for people who have been through something similar or maybe not as bad or maybe worse, but who get to the place where they're like, I I just don't want to hear that name again. I don't want to hear that word and that there's something of like how okay that is. Right. (laughs)
1: That. It, not even okay. Like how 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 right and just yeah. that is. I mean, I'm on yeah. the edges of religion myself. Yeah. You know, I I am no I am no um, recruiter for religious belonging. I I love religious text. I think it's extraordinary, but not because I think you know it's all beautiful. Some right. of it's brutal, um, <laughs> and I I love the power of these texts because sometimes the power is terrible, and sometimes the power is extraordinary. And the poetry in it um, has these hinges and these choices of language. Like Jeremiah turns to the God at one point and says, you are to me a deceptive stream and I curse the day I was born. What on earth? You know, that's an amazing series of things to have. Um, The Song of Songs is an erotic love song between two people who weren't married. And the name or the concept of God or religion isn't mentioned anywhere throughout it. And it wasn't written as an allegory. It's, a, it's an erotic poem, poem. It's Karma Sutra. A friend of mine in a Bible college a conservative Bible college, they they split up the class into the marrieds and the singles when they read through the Song of Songs because <laughs> they were worried that the singles That's would get some ideas so that they wouldn't be able to cope with and act out on and that somehow the marrieds would all be able to cope with it. <laughs> just, fine, oh which oh I God. think was hilarious. Hang on,
0: we need to replay. They were teaching Song of Songs and they split the class into the marrieds and the singles. This this all seems
2: very on track for what I would understand about these sorts of institutions. That yeah,
1: but, uh, but w- so you can be critical of that. But one of the things that's in the presence of that is that they realize they've never well, they, they respected respect text. Yeah, yeah the language, they have respect for the text
2: there.
1: <laughs> yeah, and so while you can kind of say one thing or another about what they did as pedagogy, there is a theological recognition to say, we're not talking here about metaphor. Like, this isn't mm. an allegory for God's love. Like, this is, this is talking sex. about <laughs> the most extraordinary kind of for pleasure sex between two people where the text of song of songs is not trying to say oh but God's the most important right. thing in my life <laughs> yeah. you know this is simply talking yeah. about um arousal yeah. between two people and that's extraordinary and so yeah with all of that like i i i am transfixed by the text but not as an evangelist or a recruiter for it and i think ultimately what we need in the world is good language that will correspond, I hope, to good action and to, to the kind of delight of creativity and some kind of practice of justice. And one of the ways I hope towards that is a relationship with some of these ancient texts. But that's only one of the ways. Um, I don't think anybody's missing out on anything if they don't pay attention to those texts. There's all kinds of ways to get there.
2: Hmm. So as we as we think about language and in how, like, in the places that we we are right now, everyone's. In the never ending year of 2020. Um, <laughs> how do you think, at what place do you think that, that words and language might, might have to help us moving out of this? As you said, the pandemic has exposed a lot of things that I think people just had been sweeping under the carpet for I don't even know how long. And things have just come to light, and there's, there's words and there's language that's new. And how, how do you think that might help us move forward?
1: Um, I don't know, really. I mean, a few weeks ago, the Taoiseach of Ireland, you know, the head of of Parliament, um, when he was announcing the latest measure of lockdown, kind of implied, look, we're probably likely to be in and out of some measure of lockdown and then easing of restrictions and then reintroducing restrictions on a bit of a cycle for the next while. Mm. And I thought that was a really good use of language because... That's true, you know, Um, rather than saying, "Okay, look, this is just four weeks and then it'll all be lifted. Mm -hmm. I I thought he was really wise. This is before a vaccine. But even still, a vaccine is going to take months to roll out. Mm -hmm. I thought he was really wise to say, look, this is going to be going for a while. And I thought that was a container to say to people, this is going to be a holding pattern. Increased restrictions, lifted a little, increased, lifted a little. Um, And I thought that was a wise use of language. Um, so I, I look to people, you know, of course, I look to Jacinda Ardern in New Zealand to pay attention to the way within which she just speaks plainly and clearly, seeks to build consensus, seeks mm. to um, pay attention to analysis and then to say, OK, here's what we're doing rather than spin um right. rather than making it out that oh you know new zealand's a great leader in the world right. because of this she just says here's what we're doing and i think new zealand is a great leader in the world but but not because they're trying to be the best yeah. but mm. because they're being themselves and they're they're doing something with great integrity and it's that kind of plain language that really interests me in um in public life uh, uh yeah I, I i really admire people who in public life can can use language in such a way like a
0: plain honest Mm
1: -hmm. assessment yeah description but also a a deliberate moving away from spin you know you can always tell when somebody's kind of campaigning under a slogan it just trips off too easy or it sounds a little bit too polished i don't i mean i I don't think Jacinda Ardern is the perfect politician i don't pay enough attention to know any critiques of her but to, you know, to New Zealand politics. But the various parts of her that uh, parts of her speeches that I've heard in public over the last while have been really s- straightforward. And like I know in poetry, when you want language to be plain, you have to work much, much harder at it. It's uh, easy to sound like you're being clever. You know, I can write that shit. You know, yeah. in five minutes. But to write something that has um, the measure of authenticity that takes a lot longer why and you, that takes a serious question of yourself
0: why do you think that is why do you think it's easier to go to the spin is that something in the well, human condition or are we used to it or i don't know yeah.
1: spin spin builds on itself you know it just it just continues to increase it's like fire whereas i think plain language is quite distilled mm. it says what do i mean and what do i mean and what do I mean? And what do I mean? And it continues to ask you to say that again and again and to not hide behind concepts that are just designed to signal to some that they're OK and to kind of hide threats towards others. It, it continues to ask itself and it deconstructs itself. So and I don't th- I, I don't think there's anybody who's finally got that. I think that's a, a call to humanity to ask ourselves, um, what do I mean? What do I mean? when and if all of us are tasked with public words at some point or another in our life, public to another person, public to a lot of right. people and everything in between.
0: Yeah, I was thinking of that not just in terms of a, a political, you know, pronunciation or announcement or press conference or something or some kind of slogan, but plain language within your closest relationships mm-hmm. or something yeah. that, that, okay. that we're so used to spin that does that infect the way we even speak to those closest to us? And I guess yeah. what you're asking us or you're presenting is that we should be asking ourselves that question all the time. What do I mean? Yeah. What do I mean?
1: A few years ago, i have been invited to speak at this arts festival run by a very conservative church. And I was, I was shocked when I got the invitation. <laughs> um, and actually, the person who invited me, um, I, I had known, I would worked with him in a previous life. And when he got in touch and said, oh, we want you to speak, read some poems at this arts festival that this um, church is running. I was like, you you aren't serious. Like, why would you want me? You know, not that I think I'm that controversial, but I just thought this church, I don't think that they think too much about Catholics and they definitely have terrible things to say about gay people, so I'm not sure about gay Catholics. And so I just thought, uh I said to him, are you sure? And he said, no, 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 it's really going to work. And I was like, OK. Um, and just, I mean, I prepared for it. And um, but I still I was bewildered anyway. A, a day before I was due to speak um, and I was due to speak, you know, over Zoom or one of these things. It oh, was okay. it was before this year. Okay. Um, so I wasn't it was I wasn't um, taking up all my time and travel. Anyway, a day before, his boss, he phones me and he says, oh, my boss wants to say something to you. And the guy comes on and he just said, hey, bro, um, (laughs) just with a rearrangement of priorities and a reconsideration about time frame and going forward and a way of messaging the question to do with the role of arts in our public witness. We've just decided to rethink the schedule a little bit for tomorrow. I mean, it was absolute bullshit (laughs) and um, I said to him look what's really clear to me is that you don't want me to speak because I'm gay Um, that's been clear to me since the word go and I said I promise not to sue you but I'd love it if you just tell me the truth like Mm. give it a go just try and he goes well bro you know it's just a way of thinking about the priorities honestly he, he sounded like somebody from that awful television show where people would pitch an idea and then they'd be fired. I can't remember what that show was called. Oh, the Apprentice. Yeah. Um, like, it sounded like that. It sounded like somebody had swallowed the book of absolutely meaningless business terminology yeah. and was regurgitating it down the phone to me. And I was just saying, give it a go. Like, And there is no threat here, apart from yourself. Yeah. Mm. Um, t- tell the truth. Just tell me you can't do it. And the conversation ended. And a few years later, I was in touch with my friend who'd been involved, you know, and had issued the invitation, and I said, "What do you think about that?" And he said, "It was absolute homophobia. Yeah. like they they had absolutely no interest whatsoever. They were keen at the start to to think, "Oh, wow, well, won't it be edgy if we've got a queer right. poet." Um, but then they, when they read some of my poems, and I don't think my poems are that radical, but when they read some of them, they're like, all right, this person actually pays literary and serious attention to language. And they're like, no, nah, no, nah, can't have it. Um, and so it's a shame because like, had he been able to say it on the phone to me, actually, yeah, um, this yeah. church is is in a situation where the kind of arts program we're going to curate, there isn't space for you in it. Yeah. I, I think that could have been a very interesting experience for him. And I wouldn't have sued because I mean I was shocked that they wanted me in the first place. Um, Is there? But, a,
0: there's maybe a spin inside the thinking of somebody like that 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 they're saying, "Well, I, I'm I'm still very loving to this person." You know what I mean? So then they have to find all of this series of words because they can't say what's actually happening. Right? It, it's something so they yeah. can live with themselves well, a
1: little bit. strangely i actually think that he was in a much higher situation of threat to himself than i was because mm. i'm outside of that i'll never be paid by a group of people that hate me i gave that up i used to be and i won't do it anymore so like, uh, i have nothing to fear <laughs> no, i don't care um That's but so i, I was really to <laughs> interested to hear what he might what, what he might hear in himself and i'm sure he's a nice person yeah. i can't imagine he's well paid for the work he does no and, um, and the voices sure that he
0: doing. has directing him and whatever else yeah yeah
1: yeah. And so partly like I, I'm not interested in him and you weren't doing this, but like in general, in my imagination of this character, I'm not interested in him kind of feeling shame about his life, yeah. but I would have been really interested yeah. to have heard about what could have unfolded between us in terms of language. Hmm. Like, how would he have said that? I might have learned something, and, you know, I might still be talking about that instead of something that was so predictable and flaccid and inane as to be ignorable
2: do you think that, you, you, you do talk about fear and, and like the, the reflection of like the courage, uh, at least in, in, in the work of yours that, that I've been looking at. You talk about how you have these uh, arguments with Ignatius um, and I particularly really loved that little section and, and you talk about like in, in, these, in these arguments with him, you say, you know, if, if not safe, then safe enough if not unafraid then unafraid enough and it it, it was so beautiful I, I I stopped reading for for a minute there and I just had to think and I go yeah okay like th- there there's there's a bravery and a courage required in order to be like okay I might not be safe but I, I guess I'm safe enough yeah. and
1: and the the inverse of that, too, is to say, I'm not safe and I'm not safe enough. Mm. And to go, oh, in that case, Recognizing um, my issue is to get more safety yeah. rather than anything else. Yeah. Um, you know, when I was coming out, I a friend of mine said to me, how will you cope with people who don't cope with you? And I was like, I will fall apart. And mm. she said, um... Like maybe, uh, maybe let's wait until you, uh, until you have a different answer to that. <laughs> and that was such good advice. And I waited four more years before I began four to be more out. Um, you know, and it's not that I would become more gay during that time. <laughs> it's that I was able to tell more people um, who I knew I could trust mm. in order to build up enough support, you know, um, that was so important. Um, so for me, the question, I don't know if I'm brave. Um, I certainly know I'm frightened. And I certainly know that in the face of the things that courage, where courage is needed, that one of the things that will help is vulnerability. And to ask myself vulnerable questions, to think about being vulnerable and to consider how that might look. Mm. Um, And that's the practice, I think. Whatever comes from that, I I suppose will come from it, I hope anyway. Um, But I I know that there are enough things that I'm frightened of that there's going to be plenty of reason to. Yes ask myself questions of safety or ask ask myself questions of am I causing other people on mm. and then to ask myself questions of vulnerability to think what does it mean to be vulnerable here because I think vulnerability yields the most interesting stories and the most surprising creativity and the most fascinating language.
0: Mm. I'm going to ask a question that Alison you had had uh, said we should ask. Yes um, I'll take credit for that but go and ahead. Yeah so you get the credit but I get to ask the question. Uh, do you ha- this is all in that realm of Etymology and and kind of the meaning of words or the sound of words. Do you have any favorite words? Like that's like saying
1: I do. You do. I okay, do. So I told I have, you. I have a new. I have okay. a new favorite word, and I haven't even looked up the etymology. Okay. The new favorite word is knuckle. I just think it's gorgeous. K n u c k l e, knuckle. That <laughs> silent K at the beginning of it, so it, it looks, um, it looks like it's got a rhyme in it, but K n u c k l e. Knuckle. I've just, I've been saying it to myself over it over the last few days. Um, On Monday, um, there was a poem from Ron Villanueva, um, Life Drawing, that we broadcast on um, Poetry Unbound. And it's a story about a man whose wife is showing him the sketches of of a model that she's done during a life drawing class, a male model. And the male model's naked. And the man, the poet, is kind of awkward, probably comparing himself and penis envy and body envy and anxiety and all kinds of things and she is tracing some of the lines of her drawings with her knuckle and just kind of going look here and talking about the the way that she the chest is opened or the way that the neck is poised you know and and he's obsessing about there was a naked man in front of you you know and he's not thinking that anything lascivious is going on he's just feeling in a certain sense what's my place with you When there's in this way, she's so comfortable with this, with what she's doing and he is being made so uncomfortable and the poem is an unfolding of that. Um, So we broadcast that on Monday. Um, And the thing that I mostly took away from, I mean, I've obviously been deep in the poem, but the thing that currently I'm most fascinated with is how she traces the line with her knuckle. And I have just said the word knuckle to me, and when I saw, you know, you'd sent me the questions in advance, I knew immediately that. I would look <laughs> up.
0: I'm
1: and I actually decided I wouldn't look up the etymology because I'm, I'm just enjoying saying the words that. so much. You know.
0: Now, are you going to do that soon, or you don't know when?
1: Yeah, I, I will do it at some point. Okay. Yeah. The, uh,
0: so you mentioned poetry unbound and on being. Tell us about yeah. that.
1: Yeah, so the On Being Project is a, a media and public life project that is led by Krista Tippett. She's worked in media for a long time. Um, she's got a background in studying history and theology. She worked in diplomacy in Divided Berlin during the 80s um, for the American government and also for the New York Times. And um, for the last 17 years, really, she's um, presented a fairly in-depth one hour interview with uh, a thinker. They might be a a scientist, they might be a writer, they might be a poet, they might be a theologian, Um, they might be an activist where she's asking them to speak about the world and meaning as they see it and the project of being human ultimately as they see it and the project of being human together. And so I mean that it's a huge podcast obama gave her the national award for humanities a number of years back um so i think like that program and the archives of it which are beautiful on the website you know i think there's something like 450 million downloads of those programs they're so rich she's interviewed uh, extraordinary people and i've gotten to know krista really well over the last decade and so as i was coming to the end of my time in carmila she messaged and said would I be interested in um, being part of a, a poetry project from On Being where we would release for a couple of seasons a year on Mondays and Fridays um, a poem with a little reflection on that poem. So that's what we do. The, that podcast is called Poetry Unbound. Um, so I read a poem, offer a reflection on it and read it again. It's about 12 minutes long. Um, so we're just coming to the end of season two. We'll that's be recording fantastic. season three we soon. We put
0: links for that. Yeah, so, yeah. that'd be
2: great. Oh, Um, I was wondering as, as we, as we begin to to wrap up, although I feel reticent, I don't (laughs) wish to, um, (coughs) I was wondering if, if maybe you could grace us with, with another poem. I just love
1: it. (laughs) Oh, sure.
0: Anything Um, not about hell?
2: (laughs) I don't care. (laughs) I'm just
1: kidding. (laughs) This one's about the Garden of of Eden. Oh, oh, well, okay. Right. Yeah. What's it called? It's called Make Believe. Make believe. And on the first day, God made something up. Then everything came along. Seconds, sex and beasts and breaths and rabies. Hunger, healing, lust and lust's rejections. Swarming things that swarm inside the dirt. Girth and grind and grit and shit and all shit's functions rings inside the tree trunk and branches broken by the snow. Pigs' hearts and stars. Mystery, suspense and stingrays. Insects, blood and interests and death. Eventually us with all our viruses, laments and curiosities. All our songs and made-up stories. And our songs about the stories we've forgotten. And all that we've forgotten, we've forgotten. (laughs) and to hold it all together god made time and those rhyming seasons that display decay
2: thank you thank you so much project this My has pleasure. been so a great really great conversation so <laughs> so wonderful i'm i'm looking forward to listening to more of your your work and reading more of your work um and, and I think that there, there's so much richness in, in the conversation and so much that we I, can learn about. Like, I
0: have this, like, this is going to sound really flattering, so just put up with it. But <laughs> <Thank> um, <God. laughs> uh, so you can, I'll say it to Alison. You can kind of overhear it. You know, in terms of language and then certainly in terms of uh, the transcendent things, uh, faith or otherwise, you, you meet somebody and you're like... I'm really glad that guy's in the world mm-hmm. and uh, that's what I'm feeling. So thanks for, oh, for yes. being here for us for this.
2: Yeah. No, and, and
1: I'm realizing that I said Amanda earlier on because I know oh, Amanda's. Oh yeah, because it's
0: right on the screen. It's okay. Amanda's here. Amanda's, Amanda's <laughs> She's been listening. doing producing. So. <laughs> well, wow, hello to Amanda fantastic. and also hello to you. You Amazon. are really Sorry attentive to, to words.
2: <laughs> so yeah, thank you. Thank you so much. I think that there is so much in, in your call to courage and your call to uh, attention and and I think there's so much significance in, in the fact that, that words matter and, and they matter deeply and it's very clear in your work. And I think it's something that that we certainly, um, yeah, need more of in the world mm-hmm. <laughs> is, Thanks. is attention and care and and a desire to, to connect with, with other people. And language is one of the yeah. ways that we do that. So thank you so, so much. Thanks for your
0: time. Best there. Thank you.
1: My pleasure.